this is the uh, the third sermon in our series on the Apostles' Creed. Two weeks ago, we began with the statement, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Last week, we looked at our belief that God is the maker of heaven and earth. Today, we're looking at one of the things that distinguishes Christianity from all the other religions. In fact, probably the major thing, the belief in Jesus Christ. Now, those of us who grew up in church learned early on that we had to come to faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior in order to be accepted before God. If you are like many, though, you never really understood what it meant to believe in Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Those two combined are not a swear word. They're not like our surnames that signify the family we come from. It's not Jesus from the Christ family. Christ is a title. But really, it's even more than just a title, as we will see. The Greek word Christos, from which we get Christ, means anointed one. Christos is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Mashiach, or Messiah. And this word has three uses through Scripture. The first used primarily, um, almost exclusively in the Old Testament, is simply as an adjective. An anointed one could be a priest anointed for service in the temple, could be a king anointed as he takes the throne. There were a number of Christos, anointed ones, in the Old Testament. None of them was ever considered to be the promised Messiah. Another way the term is used in a couple of instances is as a proper name. There are a few times where Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ refers to him as a proper name. And both of those uses really don't carry the sense of who Jesus Christ is. Overwhelmingly in the New Testament, the term Christos is used as a title. Christos appears 581 times in the New Testament. 383 of those times are in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Paul's writings are the earliest in the New Testament, before the Gospels. And they're a good representation of what the early church believed. When Paul uses the word Christos, he's not just speaking about a person who is anointed for a task. Although that's in there, but that's not primarily what he's talking about. He's sending a very clear message that this word... Christ is a title, that Jesus is the Christ. The Jews would have called him the Messiah. All of the apostles proclaimed Jesus of Nazareth to be the promised one that Israel had been looking for. The Jews were looking for a king. They were looking for a conquering hero who would ride in on that white horse and free them from oppression. There were some who were even anticipating two messiahs, one to be the political ruler, the other one to be the high priest, the, the religious ruler. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, 
not a war horse. Many in the crowd, though, were expecting the revolution to begin right then. After all, Rome had their army in the city at the same time. They didn't realize that the actual revolution would begin later that week. Now, the first century Jews had a hard time with the concept of a suffering Messiah. In Acts 3.18, Peter tells the people that the prophets had foretold that the Messiah had to suffer. Well, some of the Jews thought, and you can see, if you look through all through the Old Testament, you won't find any passage that says the Messiah will suffer. It's not there. But if you look at all the passages that talk about, for instance, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, other passages that talk about Israel having to suffer, about the servant having to suffer, and all of those, you put them together, you have a picture of a suffering Messiah who would come and free Israel from their bondage. He would come and do for them what they could not do for themselves. They were under God's judgment. They had to undergo punishment. The Messiah would come and take that for them. And as you read through the Gospels and the letters, it's very clear that the church, right from the earliest days, believed that Jesus Christ was that promised king who fulfilled Israel's deepest hopes. They saw his death and resurrection as the beginning of a revolution that overthrew the principalities and powers and freed them from their sins and from death. So when the early Christians proclaimed the name of Jesus Christ, they were proclaiming that that promise made to God's people long ago was now fulfilled. Sin and death had been defeated. The Messiah, who was not only David's descendant, but God's son, was now ruling. See, Jesus, and the reason they combine it, I think, with Christ is that the word Jesus at its root means deliverer. So now they were proclaiming that the anointed one, the Messiah or the Christ, was the deliverer or was God. He's not just an earthly king in the Davidic line. He is the divine king of all kings. Well, this message this title that they were giving to the Nazarene got the early Christians in a bit of trouble. I wonder why that is. Well, to the Jews, they were preaching the scandal of a suffering Messiah instead of a conquering hero. The Jews wanted power. That's what they were about. They were all about power. And they were saying, no, this man came in weakness and conquered. They were preaching that through that suffering, Jesus Christ was now reigning. To the Gentiles, they were calling them to follow and accept as Lord a man who died a humiliating death at the hands of the Romans. That was foolishness. The Greeks were all, the Romans and so on, were all about wisdom. Well, as the church grew and spread throughout the Roman Empire, the authorities soon realized that this new group of people were calling themselves followers of a king. And it wasn't 
Caesar. They didn't experience the wrath of Rome because they were telling people that if they believed in Jesus and asked him into their heart, they could go to heaven when they died. Any number of religions of this day were promising a blissful afterlife to their followers. What got the early followers of Jesus Christ in trouble was the proclamation that Jesus Christ was the true king, the king of kings and lord of lords, and that only he deserved their allegiance. These folks refused to burn just a pinch of incense to honor Caesar and therefore could not buy or sell in the marketplace. In one city, the source of fire for cooking was a pagan temple. And those who did not honor worship, the emperor, were not allowed access. In another city, access to fresh water was denied. There were groups of believers around the empire who did not allow any of their number to join the military because they would have to pledge allegiance to Caesar. These people posed a threat to the empire. If these followers of this king grew in sufficient numbers, the very fabric of the empire, of Roman life itself, would be in danger. In Acts 17, Paul and his companions were in the city of Thessalonica. While there, a riot started. That seemed to follow Paul. Paul's in the city, a riot's going to start. A mob went to the house of a man named Jason in search of these men. Not finding them, they dragged Jason out and some other Christians and dragged them to the authorities. And what they did is they essentially charged these people with sedition. In Acts chapter 17, verses 6 through 7, in the NIV it says, But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. The uh, King James Version reads, These that have turned the world upside down. They were proclaiming another king. And Paul and his companions had to sneak out of town that night because they were in danger. The bulk of the martyrs in the early days of the church were those who refused to renounce Christ and swear allegiance to Rome. According to one story, this even included a large group of Roman soldiers who renounced Rome and swore their allegiance to the true king. Now that changed somewhat when Constantine became emperor in the 4th century. Remember him. He's the one who claimed to see a vision of a cross in the sky saying, in this sign, conquer. And he went out and conquered, so he said, hmm, this must work. So he legalized and favored Christianity and brought about the first council of Nicaea which gave us the Nicene Creed, which was a later creed. In the Middle Ages, the popes claimed earthly power because of something called the Donation of Constantine, a forged document in which Constantine supposedly gave all of Rome, Italy, and the western regions to the pope to rule. 
And in the year 380, Theodosius I made Christianity the official state religion. Things have changed. And we, we don't have the time, or I don't have the energy, to go through everything that happened in the next 17, 1800 years. But let's fast forward to the 21st century. What does it mean for us to invoke the name of Jesus Christ? We claim him as our Lord and Savior and say that we are following him. Is this just a declaration of the religion that we are a part of? I once heard a teacher in, in a public school when someone asked her if she was a Christian. She said, well, of course, I'm not a Jew or a Muslim and I live in America. Is that what we're saying when we proclaim Jesus Christ? Is Jesus the king only for a time in the distant future? Or is there something more? I believe it is much more. I believe that the church in the West, but in the United States in particular, has lost the sense of what the apostles taught and what the followers of Jesus believed centuries ago. Now, remember, these are a lot of blanket statements, painting with a broad brush and all the other cliches. This is a blanket statement, and it might sound harsh, but I believe that the church has effectively sold its birthright for the pottage of political and cultural influence and power. We're living in a culture where how you vote says more about your Christianity than how you live. The divisions in the church now are not so much over doctrine or lifestyle, but over politics. A study of Scripture, especially of the teachings of Jesus Christ and the apostles, but you can go back to the Old Testament as well, will show that there are four major things that the kingdom of God is concerned with. There are others, but a lot of times they boil down to these four things. One is the value and sanctity of human life. Second one is a biblical sexual ethic. The third one is treatment of the poor and the marginalized. And the fourth one is treatment of other ethnic groups. Today we would call that racial justice. Those are the four main areas. They're addressed all through scripture. Today we have a split. Generally, America is, is, and unfortunately, a large part of the church is split into two sides. One side focuses primarily on the first two, sanctity of life and the biblical sexual ethic. At least they say they do. The other side focuses on the last two, poverty and justice. At least they say they do. That's a huge simplification, but I think it pretty much sums it up. It seems that's the nature of things politically. The other characteristic today is the tendency of each side to demand that you agree with them on every tenet of their party, or you are not really with them. Very little room for disagreement with anything. Now, there have been variations of that split throughout our history as a nation. Tim Keller states, and I agree with him, that a Christian should not feel at home 
in either political party. In fact, I would go so far as to say a Christian should not feel at home in any political party. He also believes, and I agree, that Christians should feel free to participate in politics. That's where the tension comes. How do we participate politically as folks who proclaim Jesus as king, not Caesar? Well, I think the first thing is to really believe and live as if Jesus is king. We have a tendency to worry way too much about the results of the next election. I can remember, and I, you know, I can remember back to Nixon. People saying, "Oh, he's a crook," which he was, but he'll he'll tear the country apart. Uh, they said the same thing about Kennedy, probably about Eisenhower and Truman. Everybody worries way too much about the next election. And we've been doing that that way for a couple of hundred years, by the way. Look at some of the campaigns back in the 1800s for president. We put too much of our hope in our side, our candidate. I think we come very close to worship in our trust in fill in the blank here. Again, this has been going on for a while. Who's really in control here? Who is it that sets up and takes down rulers? Who has defeated the powers of this world? I'll give you a hint. His name is God. If Jesus really is our king, then we should conduct our lives including politically, according to his teachings. In this country, one side majors in life and sex. The other side majors in justice. The kingdom of heaven says we are created in the image of God and that all life is sacred from conception to death. The kingdom of God believes in a biblical sexual ethic. And just as an, as an aside, I'm sure there's a lot of people who say that they do, when you look at it, really don't. God's kingdom teaches its citizens to love their neighbor as themselves and to take care of the poor and the needy. Our king tells us that in his body, the church, there is no Jew or Greek. All races and ethnic groups are equal and should be accepted as such. Book of Revelation says, Before the throne there will be people from every tribe, every kindred, every language, every nation, praising God. Maybe we ought to get used to hanging out with some of them now. Wouldn't be a bad idea. I used to believe that what you might call kingdom politics should be a middle ground between the two sides. I don't believe that anymore. I believe it should actually transcend the political realm. There shouldn't be a kingdom party. Because what we do as followers of the King of Kings, we do because he's changed our hearts. Not because one group or one party or one official has said something. You really can't legislate morality ultimately 
because whose morality you legislate depends on who's in power. Real change has to come from a changed hearts. Uh, last, within the last week, two icons of the civil rights movement passed away. If you remember, if, you, if some of you can remember, some of you may have heard about it, um, back in the 60s during the civil rights movement, it was not the bills that were passed that changed things. It was what went on in those cities. People saw that on TV. People's hearts were changed in some way because of that. That's what changed things. It was, excuse me, it was not the laws, although the laws were good. When we throw our lot completely with one side or the other, we effectively throw out half of what we are to be about as subjects of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying don't participate in politics. You have the freedom in Christ to do that. To be a Republican, to be a Democrat, to be a Libertarian, to be a American Party, the Alliance Party, the Green Party, the Stag Party, uh, that's, that's an old throwback. Um, there's all kinds of things you can be involved in. And you can use your participation to try to bring the values of the kingdom to bear. Be aware, though, that if you do, there may come a time when you're going to have to stand up and go against that party. These days, that can get you ostracized or canceled. Brothers and sisters, let us recapture what it means to proclaim that Jesus is king, not Caesar. I said before that I believe we're living in days much like the first century. And there may come a time when we have to stand up and tell the government that we cannot do what they command because our king commands differently. Let's begin to follow Jesus Christ now. And obey his teachings in every area of our lives now. So that if, when, that time comes, it will be a natural outgrowth of how we already have been living. Let's pray.